Our text this morning is going to be the book of Philemon, and I'm going to be reading to us verses 8 through 25, so it's the remainder of the books. Philemon, verses 8 through 25. Sounds like you're finding it. This is the Word of God. Accordingly, Paul says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Uh, to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back, you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, or my fellow prisoner <clears throat> in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, let's pray. Father, just as we sang, speak to us in your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about our lives as Christians and that they're often similar to life in a family. And at times, family life is joyful and quite fulfilling. At other times, life in a family can be stressful, perhaps even a little difficult. One of the problems with family life is that oftentimes other family members can do things to upset us or hurt our feelings. Would you guys agree that's true that happens? Yeah, a couple times maybe. When these things happen, it affects everybody in the household. If two family members are at each other's throats, there's no peace in the house, not even for members of the house who aren't involved in the conflict. And the same thing's true of the family of God. The difference is that the family in which we live is constantly growing and constantly changing. New family members are added. Some move away. 
And there is no guarantee at all that the people God adds to our family are going to be people that you naturally enjoy. It's even possible that God will add to the family people that you've known in the past and who you didn't get along. And all of a sudden, here they are, and now they're added to your family. Well, as we look at the letter of Paul to Philemon, we get a glimpse of some of the, the difficult issues that come with life as the family of God. In fact, though we saw in verses 1 to 7, Paul constantly thanks God for Philemon. In verses 8 to 21, Paul is going to need to correct Philemon on some important issues. You know, Philemon, Paul says, is somebody who has refreshed the hearts of the saints. Verse 7, that's a big deal. I mean, Philemon, you have refreshed my heart, other people's hearts. Paul's about to challenge Philemon about the way he's going to treat a new brother in Christ. So we're going to find six points together, if you want to write things down today. And I want you to prepare yourself for what God's going to do. We are, for the most part, still living separate lives in this time of social shutdown. But the Lord will be bringing us into more and more contact with one another as society reopens. And Lord willing, it'll be safe to do and we will see society reopen more. Well, as we return to relating to each other, we are more likely than ever to face times of conflict. Do you guys realize that that's true, that conflict is more likely when we start getting back together? Isolation. Living in your own house and not connecting with other people very often leads people to impatience, to uncharity, to selfishness. When I'm by myself and I don't get around you and I don't talk to you and we don't relate to each other, it is super easy for me to get stuck in my head and I think to myself about what you do or what you think or why you do it and what's wrong with you and why I'm better. Isolation's dangerous. When you haven't been around a person for a while, it is sometimes really hard for you to make yourself believe the best about those people. Well, in the letter that we're studying today, we're going to watch Paul try to correct Philemon, and it's going to remind us of how we are supposed to treat each other with graciousness, with mercy, with patience, and with forgiveness. So let's get started. Six points. The first one, reprove one another with gentleness. Reprove one another with gentleness. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Those two verses give us a hint, the first hint of this book, that Paul is about to rebuke Philemon for a thing. Up until now, every word has been gentle, every word has been full of praise for the way Philemon lives his Christian life. Philemon is a fellow worker. He's the host of a local church. Philemon is part of a group that has genuine faith, that genuinely loves one another. They've got genuine faith. They have genuine love for one another. The people at the, at the church in Colossae that meets in Philemon's house, they refresh the hearts of the saints. But now Paul is going to get to business, and the business is going to include a bit of a correction. Notice first, though, that Paul takes an approach of gentleness toward Philemon. Paul, Paul, do you guys remember what Paul's job description is? Paul's an apostle. You need to know that's a big word. We don't have any of those walking the earth today. 
Paul is a man sent out by Jesus, carrying with him a huge amount of authority. But in this situation, Paul doesn't use his authority. Instead, Paul lays it aside. He doesn't ignore that he has the authority, but he sets it aside so that he can appeal to Philemon with tenderness, with gentleness. He chooses to appeal to Philemon as a frail but wise old friend, an old man and prisoner for the gospel. You know, in our Christian lives, guys, we are going to have times in which we need to correct one another if we're going to be righteous children of God. And it is my hope that when those times come, when correction needs to come, we can do it with the kind of gentleness and tact that we see Paul use right here. We ought to first be kind and affirming of the good qualities of the person that we intend to reprove or rebuke. Remember, Paul in verses 1 to 7 has several really good things to say about Philemon. Now, I want you to hear me, so pay attention here. The people you need to correct also need to know that you love them, that you're with them, that you are for their good. Because if all a person hears from you is what you think they need to change, they are going to stop being able to hear you at all. People are much more likely to respond well to a rebuke from us if they see we also see their good qualities. And when we do correct them, we ought to correct them with love and gentleness as far as we possibly can be gentle. Now, do not hear what I'm saying or use it as a technique that you're going to use to try to get your way by offering a compliment before a critique. Or you ever hear communications teachers, oh, we want to do a compliment sandwich. Say something nice, tell them what's wrong and you want, you want to change, and then say something nice again. That's fine technique because it's based on wisdom, but I'm not trying to give you interpersonal communication techniques. I'm trying to show you from the Word of God how we live lovingly and graciously in the family of God. And you need to, this has to be real. You, how many of you have sat in a room and had someone compliment you and you know it's fake just because they want to get to the rebuke? Yeah. Don't do that. You, if I hear about you guys doing that, I'm going to come talk to you and I may not compliment you first. Okay? <laughs> Don't do that. Final note with regard to this point. If you are the believer who is being reproved by another believer, do your best. Be committed to believing that the person in our church challenging you is doing so for your good. Paul's not rebuking Philemon because he just enjoys telling people what to do. He's rebuking Philemon for the sake of the glory of God, for the unity of the church. He's, he's doing it for Philemon's growth and for the safety of a man, a servant former slave named Onesimus. So let's learn a little bit about Onesimus and find our next point about living in the family of God. Point number two, respect one another as family. Respect one another as family. Look at verses 10 and 11. They say, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. 
Onesimus is a man who had formerly been a slave owned by Philemon. However, Onesimus had run away from his work. And it's likely that Onesimus stole from his former master when he ran. Maybe he took the money or took some valuables so that he could finance his escape. Well, Quickly, you know, as a side note here, it's been about two years in PRC since we have talked about the issue of slavery in a sermon. If you want to look up a message where we talk a lot about uh, slavery and and some of the principles related to it, I preached on it when we talked about 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 to 25, and the date of that sermon was July 29th of 2018. It's hard for me to believe it's been that long ago, by the way. It seems like we were just in First Peter. But if you want to hear how we discuss slavery, then uh, you can go find that on our SoundCloud page very easily. I don't want to cover all the ground about slavery because it would take us about 10, 15 minutes to do uh, at least. And we will revisit the issue of a Christian response to that institution when we return to the book of Ephesians and reach chapter 6, which I hope we'll be able to do in a month or two. But here's what I will say for clarity this morning about the issue of slaves because Philemon uh, Onesimus was a slave. The book of Philemon does not in any way endorse the kind of evil, chattel slavery that was part of the American Civil War era. No faithful Bible interpreter could use the book of Philemon to say what was happening in the 1800s in America was okay. Racism in any form is a sin. Dehumanizing any person or any people group based on their skin color or their social category is sin. It is a sin to look down on someone who's in the minority. It is a sin to dehumanize someone who's in the majority in any country. And what we were doing, what the Americans were doing in the 1800s, man-stealing, kidnapping a person to force them into slavery, is a crime that Exodus 21.16 said was punishable by the death penalty. Now, the situation of slaves in the Roman Empire, when Paul was writing, is not the same situation as the evil that was happening in the U.S. during the 19th century. But it doesn't say that slavery in that era couldn't be brutal. It was awful sometimes. Some people found it appealing. Some people chose to become slaves during the Roman Empire days. But the concept of the institution of slavery, that's not the purpose of the letter of Philemon. Paul's not aiming at, let's get a Christian theology of slavery in the book of Philemon. Instead, what Paul is doing is challenging Philemon to treat Onesimus not as a slave, but as a brother in the Lord. Many uh, interpreters would look at that, by the way, and they would say, if Paul is telling you to do this, there's no way the institution of slavery will long stand. But slavery is not the topic of this book. When Paul said, I'm writing on Onesimus' behalf, that would have floored Philemon. When Paul called Onesimus my son, that would have been even more of a shock. It's funny, the name Onesimus, which was a common slave name, literally means useful. His name means profitable. But to Philemon, a slave who ran away, that was the exact opposite of useful and profitable. That Onesimus was not Onesimus to Philemon. 
Now Paul is saying, hey, Onesimus is now truly Onesimus. He is truly a profitable, useful guy. And the most outstanding point, though, to Philemon here would be the fact that Paul calls Onesimus my son. Paul, Paul used the language of calling somebody son when he was talking about somebody he had led to the Lord Jesus in salvation. Paul led Philemon to Christ. Philemon was one of the people that Paul would have called my son. Now Paul's telling Philemon that Onesimus, after running away from the household, after stealing from Philemon, after taking his property, making him super mad, I'm sure, he had become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had become part of the family. You know, Christians, I think if we were honest, you all here in the room with me, you can, you can talk about this, because obviously nobody but you know, whoever's watching on Facebook will know what you say. But you ever notice that you're not always immediately drawn personally to every single person who expresses faith in Christ? That it can be that in the church there are people that rub you the wrong way? Maybe, just a couple you, It might be that somebody who comes to faith is, they feel, they seem very different than you. Maybe, maybe someone who comes to faith is someone who did you wrong in the past. What Paul wants us to remember, what God wants us to remember, is this. Every person who is a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is part of the family of God. No matter who they are, no matter who they've been before their conversion, every believer in Jesus Christ must receive our acceptance as a family member. Now, I'm not calling us to be foolish with that. As a church, if we have a person who came to Jesus while they were in prison for embezzlement, we don't make them the church treasurer the moment they come out of the prison, right? What I'm saying is the person, no matter what their background is, if they're genuinely converted, they absolutely deserve our love and our respect as fellow family members in the household of God, even if there are limits to what areas of service they may be able to do. Receiving respect as family members is important. But I will say this as well. People receive respect as family members in the family of God after they show that they are genuinely converted, after evidence of their conversion. And we're going to see that in our next point, that it was true of Onesimus in verses 12 to 14. Third point, Repair the wrongs you have done. I could add, do your best to repair the wrongs you've done. Look at 12 to 14. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. What Paul says here in the first few words is amazing. Onesimus is returning to his former master. Can you imagine how frightening that must have been? By the way, Onesimus is carrying with him and another believer. He's carrying the letter to Colossae, probably the letter to the Ephesians, and this letter. Onesimus is returning to his former master, and he knows the legal penalty for a runaway slave. He knows Philemon could have him beaten or even killed under the Roman law. 
And I bet Onesimus is afraid of all sorts of things, some of them rational, some of them not. Regardless, Onesimus is going back to Philemon to do what's right. When you wrong someone, have, have you all ever wronged anybody before? Nobody in the room with me has, just so you on Facebook know. It's just other people. Uh, you guys have, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you wrong someone, you end up in their debt. You owe them something when you wrong them. Now, it might be as simple as what you owe them is to apologize and ask, please, would you forgive me? I was wrong. But you owe them that if you sin against them. It could be more than that, though, right? You might need to make some restitution. Maybe, maybe you need to pay somebody back because you caused them a financial burden. In Onesimus's case, the right thing to do was to return to his former master and face him and submit to whatever Philemon would call him to do. But you got to think that's probably the last thing that Onesimus really wanted to do, right? What does it tell you about Onesimus that he willingly walks back into the situation? It tells you that Onesimus has had a genuine change of heart. He's had a genuine change of life. And Paul sees it. Paul's already testified to it. Now Onesimus' actions show it to us. When we as Christians mess up, which we do, and it's not unusual that we would do that, we need to do everything in our power to set things right. Oftentimes, we want to run away from the wrongs that we've done. We want to hide behind the grace of God. We want to say, oh, God forgave me, so I don't need to apologize to that person over there. But if you're to be a real, genuine follower of Jesus, faithful to the word of Jesus, you need to do what is in your power to set right the wrongs that you've committed. Maybe the other person will forgive you. Maybe the other person won't forgive you. But it's still your responsibility to do everything you can to try to live at peace, especially with those who are part of the family of God right here with you. Now, I'm not saying all this to tell you that you need to think about that child you insulted in the third grade and, you know, try to find them, look them up so you can say, hey, by the way, I said nasty things about you on the playground, so please forgive me. I mean, you can if you want to. I'm not telling you that. But I think you all know, right, that the relationships, the people that are going to see you, the people that are, going to, that are going to remember you, that are going to be hurt by you, you owe them something. Do your best to make it right. Take a moment to think right now. Is there somebody you've wronged in our church? If so, you need to do what you can to make it right. Maybe you need to go to them and, and say, would you please forgive me for what I said or for what I did or for how I treated you? Maybe you need to pay somebody back for a loan that you've been trying to ignore for a little while. Whatever it is, if you've wronged somebody, do what you need to do to make it right to the best of your ability to the glory of God. Now, we're going to go back to looking at this situation, this time from Philemon's point of view. And in the next two verses, I think we'll see something that can be helpful to us when we've been wronged, when you are the one wronged. Point number four, recognize the hand of God in your circumstances. This is a hard one, guys. Recognize the hand of God in your circumstances. Verses 15 and 16 say, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul points out here, God has a purpose here. And maybe the purpose for all that's happened is that Onesimus can be returned to Philemon with a brand new status. Perhaps there's another reason behind it. Either way, Paul tells Philemon something really good has come out of a thing that you thought was a really bad situation. You know, if you remember the life of Joseph, bad things happened. God was doing something. And just like in the life of Joseph, you and I cannot always see what God intends to accomplish in our lives with the things we are forced to go through. Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. By the way, can you imagine how possible that is that someone can be trying to do you harm and God can mean even that harm for something ultimately good in the long run? Genesis 50, 20, by the way. When you're hurt, I would urge you to do your best to remember that, yes, you may be legitimately hurt by something that was legitimately evil, but we still need to do our best to remember that we don't know. We don't know how God might use even our deep pain, even something that wronged us, for our good and God's glory. You know, maybe the Lord has allowed you to go through a hardship so that you could actually eventually be able to comfort somebody else who faces that similar kind of pain. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, listen to this, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. That's a powerful paragraph. Sometimes all we know, friends, is that our walking through suffering is a thing that the Lord promises he will use to shape us more into the image of Christ and to better display his majesty for eternity. Listen to Romans 8.28 and 29. You guys know 8.28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined what? To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or how about 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9? Paul, talking about a pain in his own life, says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I didn't write it here, but the next verse actually says, for the sake of Christ then, 
I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the case of Philemon, what did God do through the thing that caused Philemon anger or loss? Onesimus came to faith in Jesus. Onesimus provided help and encouragement and comfort for Paul while Paul was in prison in Rome. God was clearly accomplishing God's will even though Onesimus ran away and wronged Philemon. So as Christians, sometimes we can find comfort just in the fact that we know that the Lord can use our pains, our hardships, and our sufferings to grow us, to help others, to bring God glory. And maybe, just maybe, knowing that will help you to be willing to forgive somebody else when they repent of their sin and when they ask your forgiveness. Now, why is Paul pointing all this out? It's because he understands that there is a great need for unity and love among Christians in the body. And we're going to see a little bit more of that in verses 17 through 19. Point number five. Reconcile Christians who are in conflict. Verses 17 through 19. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So Paul is at the heart of his request for Philemon. He knows Philemon loves Paul. Paul now says to Philemon, I really want you to show the very same love to Onesimus, your former fugitive slave. But Paul doesn't just stop with the request that Philemon would forgive. Paul steps in and he makes a legal pledge on Onesimus' behalf. Paul says, hey, if Onesimus has wronged you, if Onesimus owes you some money, Paul says, I will be responsible to pay it back. See that statement he says there? He says, I'm writing this with my own hand. This is a legally binding notice that Paul says, I will take on any debt Onesimus owes you, Philemon. You know, many times in the church, we're going to see two Christian brothers or sisters who have reasons to be upset with each other. And we'll want to see them restored to fellowship. We want the unity of the body to be restored. What this passage is telling us is how important that unity is and ought to be to us. Paul is willing to be financially responsible for Onesimus' wrongs if only that will bring about the unity of the body. And we need to be willing to go to great lengths in order to see that Christians in conflict are reconciled to one another for the glory of God. So here's a question. What are you willing to do for the sake of bringing about unity in the body? Are you willing to risk your comfort? Are you willing to to risk your honor to seek that a brother or sister in Christ will be reconciled with another? Are you willing to help a weaker brother make right his wrongs? Do you know somebody that you might be able to help be reconciled to another person? It is our duty as family members to see to it that our family members are unified. In Matthew 5, 9, remember what Jesus said? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what you want to be. 
And Paul follows this appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus' debt with a reminder of just how much Philemon owes Paul. I think it's clever the way he says this here. Paul led Philemon to Jesus. Philemon, Paul says, now I'm not going to mention it, but you do owe me your very self. That was a nice way of him not mentioning it, right? Paul is reminding Philemon to be gracious to Onesimus because others have been gracious to Philemon. And what I think you and I need to notice here is that, but there's one more thing I want you to notice here. Think back to the book of Ruth a little bit and some of the stuff we saw there. We need to see redemption here. It's clearly present. You know, like Onesimus, you and I wronged a master, right? Onesimus wronged Philemon. You and I have wronged the Lord God Almighty. And God, by God's grace, through the work of Jesus Christ, God stepped in and paid our debt for us to be forgiven and brought into right relationship with him. As a redeemer, Jesus paid the price to buy us out of judgment and make us into adopted children of God. So let me be clear with you here. Nobody automatically gets forgiveness. You know that, right? We've talked on forgiveness. We did that in a couple sermons in Ephesians 4, 32 before we left that book for a little bit. The only way you are forgiven is if by God's grace you turn away from living for yourself and turn to Jesus in faith for mercy. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to commit yourself to be the follower of Jesus. You've got to ask Jesus by grace through his work alone to save your soul. That's how you know Jesus has paid your debt in full. But Christians, when you think about your redemption, it needs to cause you to desire to be gracious to other people too, even to people with whom you've had conflict. I mean, can't you hear the Lord Jesus saying some similar words to what Paul said here? In the model prayer, Jesus says, pray to God, forgive, me our, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Mark 11, Jesus says, you stand praying. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, again, we are not given the privilege of holding grudges. And again, some of us are more grudgy, grudge holder types than others. I get it. And it can be super hard. So I'm not trying to beat you up. But God does not leave it open for us just to be nasty and bitter and unwilling to forgive the repentant. Again, I've taught you this before. If you want to forgive as the Lord forgave you, you don't just automatically drop and forgive something that's an important issue. You can't complete the transaction of forgiveness by yourself. You finish the process of forgiveness when you see a hint of repentance on the part of the person who was in the wrong. But, and this is what's vital, we need to be eager before the Lord, super willing to forgive anybody who would in repentance want our forgiveness. Again, think logically with me. Jesus has given up his life and suffered the wrath of Almighty God to pay for your sins. Now, imagine that there's another person who also has received that same forgiveness. But you've been hurt by that person. You just want to hate him. You just want to, I just don't want to like him. I just want to be mad at him forever. You want to demand to get yours against them. But Jesus, your God, died for them just like he died for you. 
Can you not hear Jesus saying, just as Paul said, charge that to me? I think Jesus would. I genuinely believe that Jesus would look at a repent at, at somebody who's wronged us, who wants our forgiveness. Jesus would say, charge their guilt to my account. We just can't be grudge holders in Christ, in the family of God. It doesn't work. Now again, if you, if you want to go back and hear the sermons on forgiveness, where I talk about sometimes we can't transact forgiveness without repentance and things of that nature, go back and see the end of Ephesians uh, or reach out and I'll help you through it. But this is a big deal, Christians. Now Paul knows Philemon. This is the good part of this book. Paul knows once Philemon sees what's happening here, he's going to do the right thing. And that's going to teach us a thing we can see in verses 20 to 21 and through the end of the book. We'll call this one, Live Your Faith in Reality. Live Your Faith in Reality. I should have said, really, live out your faith, and then they'd have all started with R. But I didn't, because I don't alliterate. Live Your Faith in Reality. Verses 20 and 21 say, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Paul's admitting it. Yeah, I want you to do something for me. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Back in verse 7 of Philemon, Paul praised Philemon for being a guy who refreshes the hearts of the saints. Now, after the appeal's been made, Paul calls on Philemon to refresh his own heart. Paul's saying to Philemon, man, I want you to earn the praise that I've already given you. I want you to live what I said about you. You're a, you're a heart refresher. And for you and for me, we need to begin to understand that it is not enough Christians to know the truths about how Christians ought to live. If we don't take these truths that we've learned into our real lives, into the real world, then our learning the truths is useless. You got to think about that because, man, in, in the Reformed church community, we love new facts. We love new studies. God wants you to be a living disciple, not just a collector of information. It is not enough that you have a theory about Christian living. It honors God when you truly live the things you know. And in the case of the passage for today, we need to begin the process of building unity in the body of Christ. If you know believers who are in conflict, do what is right to make them reconciled to one another as best you can. If you're someone who's holding a thing against another Christian, look, you're either going to have to let it go or seek to be restored by saying, hey, this, this was a problem. I want to forgive you. Here's what's going on. If you've wronged somebody else, make it right. Go ask for forgiveness and do it all with gentleness and love as family members. I want to read the rest of the, the book here. Verse 22 says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the closing. It's very earthy. It just reminds us that Paul and Onesimus and Philemon and the rest, they're living real lives. This is not some ooh, super lofty, majestic church. They're living normal lives in the family of God. 
We do too. I mean, Paul says, hey, make a bed for me, would you? Paul says to Philemon, I'm really hoping I can come visit you soon. I think it's going to happen. Now, by the way, Christians, you know what that is right there? Besides him asking for some lodging, there's a little accountability here, don't you think? Paul says to Philemon, hey, I want you to forgive this guy. I want you to treat Onesimus like a brother. I want you to treat him well like you would treat me. By the way, I'm going to show up. Just in case you think that I'm not going to check on you. Now, he didn't say it that way, but I think Philemon knows. We need accountability in our Christian lives. We need people to check up on us. We need people to make sure that we are doing our best to do the things the Lord has called us to do. Then Paul sends greetings to, to, to Philemon. This part, of the, this part of the section of the book, of any of Paul's letters, this is the part that I sort of say, okay, and these guys say, hey. You know, I mean, right? Tell them I said hi. That's what's happening here. Aristarchus is right there. The people in Colossae knew Aristarchus. He, might have been, he was connected in some way there. I want to just point out one of the names. We could talk about all of these names. I don't, have, I don't want us to take the time to do that, but there's one name I want you to see. Take notice. Who else says hey? Mark. See that name right there? Mark. Do you remember Mark wronged Paul? Mark is the John Mark who, when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, got lonesome for his mommy and left. Left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch. Then, later, second journey, Paul says to Barnabas, I don't want to take Mark with us. Barnabas says, I think we should. And Paul and Barnabas divide. They go separate ways. That mark is the mark with Paul in Rome as a faithful worker sending greetings, which tells you what? Paul forgave Mark in exactly the same way Paul is telling Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And then Paul ends the letter just as he began it with a blessing Paul's writing on behalf of Onesimus, a family member in the Lord. He's writing to Philemon, a family member in the Lord. And he is wanting these men to be under the blessing of God as they live as his family here on earth. So what do we do, Christians? We reprove each other with gentleness. We respect one another as family. We repair the wrongs we've done to the best of our ability. We recognize the hand of God in all our circumstances. We do our best to reconcile Christians in conflict. And we do our best to live our faith in reality, the real world, not just in our heads. And ultimately, friends, this all boils down to a gospel picture. You have to have the mercy of Jesus so that you can be forgiven and made into a child of God. Once you have the mercy of Jesus, you should show that mercy to others as you live out real life in God's family. Let's pray together. Father, we are still super grateful for your grace. We know, we know that we are sinners forgiven in Jesus alone if we're forgiven at all. And our hope and our trust is in Jesus. I pray that everyone who hears this message, Lord, will think about their need for salvation and cry out to Jesus. Lord, we also know that you have brought every believer into your family for your glory. You call us to live as part of a Christian community. You call us to be a part of a church so that we can live 
to your glory as a family, and you call us to do it as real, solid, faithful, forgiving, gracious Christians, I pray, Lord, that we will do that. I pray that we'll live that way. Lord, I pray for our church that you be magnified in it. I pray you show us your goodness. We pray you help us to be good to one another. And I pray it all in Christ's holy name. Amen.